Hey listeners, this is Katie Langston from the Enter the Bible podcast. We just wanted to thank you so much for engaging and listening during season two. And I'll let you know we're taking a quick break until after the first of the year, but we'll be back in your feed with season three in just a few short weeks with a great lineup of guests and answers or at least reflections related to the fantastic questions you've submitted. In the meantime, could you do us a favor? Rate and review us on your favorite podcast app and share the podcast with a friend. It really helps us get the word out and provide thoughtful, faithful reflections on the Bible and the world. And if you've got a burning Bible question, submit it on our website at enterthebible.org. We'll see you in early 2022 for season three. Welcome to the Enter the Bible podcast, where you can get answers or at least reflections on everything you wanted to know about the Bible, but were afraid to ask. I'm Katie Langston. And I'm Catherine Schifferdecker. And we have a very special guest with us uh, today to talk to us uh, about a couple of subjects. This is John J. Collins, the Holmes Professor Emeritus of Old Testament Criticism at Yale Divinity School. Uh, He's also the author of numerous books uh, on the Old Testament and the Dead Sea Scrolls and apocalypticism and all kinds of uh, topics like that, as well as the editor of several scholarly works and series. So we're very honored to have him here that he agreed to be a guest on this little podcast for Enter the Bible. So welcome, Professor Collins. Glad to be here. Good. Well, the first question we wanted to talk about is something that you uh, have great expertise in. You're one of the really uh, leading scholars in the world on this, but uh, we're going to put it simply. uh, What are the Dead Sea Scrolls and why do they matter? Okay, well, first of all, what are they? They are uh, piles of fragments that were found in the vicinity of the Dead Sea between the years 1947 and 1955, some of which contain uh, legible manuscripts. They all contain something legible. Uh, Many of the fragments had to be pieced together. But in all, there were fragments of perhaps a thousand documents or texts. Most of these in Hebrew or Aramaic though there were a few in Greek. But before these were found, we the oldest manuscripts we had of the Hebrew Bible were medieval. So a, more than a thousand years later than these. And uh, we had no literature preserved in Hebrew that was, I mean, even, uh, even copied in Hebrew. Between the book of Daniel which was written about 164 BCE, and the Mishnah, which was written towards the end of the second century of the Common Era. And what is the Mishnah, really quick? What is the The Mishnah? Mishnah is one of the rabbinic texts Uh that uh, give you rabbinic rulings, um, mostly based on the Bible, but how you apply it in particular situations. Okay, cool. So, but it's not part of the Bible. It's not like a... It is not part of the Bible. It is part of what we call the rabbinic literature, Mm -hmm. which is a huge corpus consisting of the Mishnah, the Talmud, actually two Talmuds, 
Midrashim, and so forth. These were texts produced in Hebrew or sometimes in a mixture of Hebrew and Aramaic. Okay. Uh, in the years roughly 200 AD down to the Middle Ages. Oh, cool. So the, uh, the Dead so, Sea Scrolls themselves, they date from... Uh, now, the, the, the site where they were found was destroyed by the Romans in 68 AD. Okay. So we assume that everything was written before that. Yeah. How much before is often controversial. Uh, it's generally believed, I think, that there's a copy of the book of Isaiah that may go back to the third century. Mm. When these scrolls were first found in 1947, there was a young man who had just finished his doctorate at Yale, John Trevor, was in Jerusalem, who happened to be good at photography. Huh. And he took a photo of the photos of these manuscripts and sent them off to William Foxwell Aldright, you know, who was the authority of the time. And the story goes that Aldright took, brought this into class and put it out on the desk and said, that writing comes from the third century BC. Mm. Wow. And, ev and everybody believed him. Okay, so yes, yeah. was he <laughs> was it true? No, Nowadays, do we believe him or? <laughs> but very few people would have the gumption <laughs> because there, there was nothing in it to indicate the date other okay. than the style of writing. Huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so whether the style of writing really deserves that degree of confidence is maybe an open question. Okay, okay. But, but in any case, they're, they're very old. So very old, yes. again, before this, the oldest Hebrew manuscripts were from what? Uh, about a thousand oh, AD. A thousand. Yeah. Uh, the Aleppo oh. Codex. The, the late 1990s, I think. Yeah. So we're leaping back, oh what, a thousand, some, a thousand years, yes. roughly. So this brings us to the first reason why they're important. Yeah. And this, I think, is the first thing that people noticed is that, you see, before this, we have three forms of the Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, whatever you want to call it. You have the Masoretic Hebrew text, which comes from the Middle Ages, carefully copied by scribes with points put in for the vowels. You have the Greek. Now, we have Greek manuscripts several hundred years older mm. than the Masoretic Hebrew. Mm. Now, these were translated from the Hebrew, generally thought they were translated perhaps in the third century BC. And so really they are witnesses possibly to an older text, but it's often quite different from what you get in the Hebrew. Okay. In some cases, the Greek text is considerably shorter. For example, in the book of Jeremiah. Mm -hmm. And before the scrolls were found, many people believed that the Greeks just thought the Hebrew was long-winded <laughs> and abbreviated it. Uh, but then it turns out that you have Hebrew texts that correspond to the shorter Greek texts. Mm. Ah. So, you know, that has made a huge change in the way people look at the Greek text, where it's now generally believed that it's a faithful translation huh. of a Hebrew text that was around in the third century BC or the second century BC. There was also the Samaritan Pentateuch, 
which is, uh, you know, uh, recognizably the same text. Uh, the major difference is they say that the God, mountain where God makes his name to dwell is Mount Gerizim mm -hmm. instead of Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. But also, apart from that, it uh, often conflates the Hebrew text. When I say conflates, I mean, the, the Bible, if you read it at all, you will notice, is quite repetitive. It often goes over the same ground, but sometimes with differences. Mm. And there are lots of laws in the Bible that appear in different forms. For example, you know, how should you cook the Passover meat? Should you roast it or should you boil it? And there's even one text that says you should roast it in water. What? You know, or boil it out for fire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's an attempt to try to have it both ways. Yeah. So, but again, in the case of the Samaritan Pentateuch, it turns out that there were Hebrew manuscripts in the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh. you know, that were like the Samaritan Pentateuch in that respect, but didn't have Mount Gerizim as the holy place. So it appears, you know, that you had three quite different forms of the text, because you also get texts uh, that correspond very closely to the Masoretic. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it seems that you had three different forms of the text in circulation around the time of Christ. Mm -hmm. They began to standardize it, it seems, in the first century AD, that the later manuscripts tend to conform more consistently to the Masoretic. But prior to that, you know, just as we might use English translations of the Bible that are quite different from each other hmm. and, you know, brush it off. So hmm. they apparently could use Hebrew texts of the Bible that were quite different from each other and uh, say this, too, is a word of the Lord. Hmm. So that's one major thing that we learned from the Dead Sea Scrolls. So it gives us a window, These all these scrolls or fragments of scrolls give us a window into that process of what we call canonization right where the the text reaches a final form or the form that we have it in now is that well, fair yes, to say but, that what i've been talking about so far is the text i mean that's actually well what that's true words, yes. yeah. what yeah. words should you put on the page right mm -hmm. and there was a lot of variety in that and that began to be stabilized in the first century of the common era. But now with regard to the canon, uh, this too is a somewhat muddled picture. Everybody agrees that the Torah, the Pentateuch, was authoritative at least say by 200 BC. I think it was authoritative for a few centuries before that, Mm -hmm. But I think we can say with great confidence from the time of Ben Sira, the Dead Sea Scrolls assume the authority of the law of Moses. Hmm. What is not so clear is what did they think was in it? Hmm. Because now, they had all the books we have. But one of the most dramatic texts found in the Dead Sea Scrolls was the Temple Scroll, mm -hmm. which was the longest of all the scrolls. It was longer than the book of Isaiah. Uh, and it was 
it, there was a, a, a one section on the temple that gave it its name. And then the rest of it was kind of a, a, a harmonization of laws from Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Now, but the odd thing about it is that they do not say, and this is another writing that Moses left behind, the speaker in the temple scroll is God. Mm. So it's presented as direct divine revelation. This is actually quite unusual because most of the writings we have from that period will say that uh, maybe there was an angel speaking to Moses as in the book of Jubilees or Moses himself or somebody like him writing things, but it's very exceptional to have something claimed to be a revelation of God. So if somebody went to the trouble and expense of copying out this huge scroll and it, the scroll claims this is the revelation of God, would you figure they thought this was authoritative? Now, you would think. Sure, yeah, you think so. Yeah, <laughs> now, I think so. On the other hand, you can say we don't have any cases in the Dead Sea Scrolls where they cite that as ah. the authoritative text. And so that's a question mark. But it sure looks to me that whoever wrote that scroll put it forward in the hope that it would be accepted as divine revelation and that somebody accepted it. So you're saying there's lots of texts preserved in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and some of them have made their way into what we would consider the canon now, and some of them have not. And some and of them make the cut. Okay. Um, For example, yeah. uh, the book of the books of Enoch. Right. Which were preserved then in Ethiopic translation in Ethiopia as prophecy, mm -hmm. and still regarded as part of the Ethiopian Bible. Well, they had those in Aramaic hmm. at Qumran, and they had them in multiple copies, and they had multiple copies of the Book of Jubilees, and they had more copies of those things than they had of books like Chronicles or Ezra and Nehemiah, and they didn't have Esther at all. So, you know, that they had evidently Torah, with some question mark as to what counted. Mm -hmm. The question is, they might have had more than we have. They didn't have less. Mm -hmm. Prophets. Now, again, uh, they might have had more because we have other books in the name of Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel. And we don't know how much authority was accorded to these. And they had more Psalms than we have in our collection. Right, yeah. But then eventually some of these didn't survive. <laughs> some of these weren't known at all until they were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It just disappeared. So does that mean the Bible is incomplete and we need to go back and put some of these other ones in? Well, of course, the Protestant Bible is incomplete anyway. You know that. Right? Speaking as a Catholic. Yes, Speaking sure. as a Catholic. Yes. <laughs> I always tell, tell students that if they have a Protestant Bible, they're getting shortchanged. <laughs> they're not getting their full value. <laughs> well, now, there have been some people who say, you know, we should actually go back and uh, have all of this. Sure. 
Now, you know, in, in practice, since I've spent a lot of my life working on non-canonical material, uh-huh. I tend to think that way anyway. You know, that if, uh, if I'm discussing uh, something about the Bible, I'm as likely to cite something from the Book of Enoch, uh, maybe more likely to cite that than something from Leviticus. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> but uh, I don't think there is any likelihood that any church is going to, you know, take the whole Dead Sea Scrolls of Scripture. Sure. But well, particularly because be- many of the uh, non-biblical scrolls are pretty strict. To, to put it lightly. You know, <laughs> oh, really? Oh, yeah. Yes. The, the community at Qumran, I think, uh, John, correct me if I'm wrong, but the community yeah. at Qumran makes the Pharisees look very gentle and, uh, <laughs> you know, pastoral. The, the, the Pharisees were the seekers after smooth things, hmm. the softies. Huh. So um, now, you know, we have, a, this was something we hadn't gotten around to saying that. Uh, some of the texts that you have in the Dead Sea Scrolls are what we call biblical texts. Mm-hmm. Some of them are like biblical texts, but were probably just part of common Judaism at the time. Mm-hmm. Like, like the Book of Jubilees, right? Kind of retellings of the biblical That's text. right. And there yeah. are a lot of those retellings. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's hard to know whether they were meant to be retellings or meant to be new editions mm-hmm. of the original thing. Uh, but then there were also a number of books that we think were sectarian. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, by sectarian, I mean that they come from um, uh, an organization, an association that had its own ritual of admission and expulsion. Hmm. In one form of it, it was a new covenant. So now, you know, people you throw the word sectarian around a little bit loosely. This, I would think, though, is a textbook example of it, because mm-hmm. it is a movement that is separate from the rest of Judaism at the time. And that's so, you're, you're talking about the community at Qumran, where the texts were found. Well, it, only it turns out that they weren't just at Qumran. But this has been something of a hobby horse of mine. Okay. You know, that even in the community rule from Qumran, they talk about uh, settlements where there are at least 10 people. Mm-hmm. Both the major rule books talk about multiple settlements. Some of them may have been quite small. Now, I think that probably what the Qumran was, in fact, one settlement. Mm-hmm. Some people think it may have been a mother house, uh, but we don't know that. We don't, it may also have just, just have been the most remote of them. And that that's so why all the schools ended up there. And these settlements were of the same sect of Judaism. They were of the that, same. That appear sect. to be of the same. You sect. Think of them as Baptists. <laughs> Those were the Baptists of the Jew, of the ancient Jewish world. So yeah, I mean, like what in, characterizes in what, them? Yeah, like yeah. But what what do you mean the Baptists? Yeah. Meaning they're kind of spreading <laughs> themselves into yeah. Well, I mean, they they also they did a lot of ritual washing. Oh, yes, true. certainly. Yes. Oh, so literally. But, but I, I, the I just yeah. meant, you know, of like, as I say, Baptists are, we would call them a denomination. Sure. Uh, but it, I mean, in some cases, uh, some of the Christian denominations haven't thought too highly of the rest of Christianity. That's and I think thing. this would also be true <laughs> in the case of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Huh. You know, that these were people who thought they had a revelation that the same Torah 
the same God, but they had a different understanding of it. And they didn't think this was a matter of opinion. Yeah. They thought this was a divine revelation that they had. Okay. So they didn't actually like the the Jews in Jerusalem, the, the, the Sadducees, the priestly class associated with the temple. They didn't like anybody very much. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I do know some Baptists like that. <laughs> just teasing Baptist listeners. No, no, I love that. you. I'm just oh, yeah. teasing you. Yeah. Uh, no, I mean, that they, these were, do not come across as happy people. No, uh, no, 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 no. Truly. <laughs> they were but kind no. of separating themselves in the desert. They were the pure, they had the okay. pure revelation. Yes. Is that fair to say? Now, I think, you know, they, they, it is now becoming clear, at least, there were different grades of it. Yeah. One of the texts called the Damascus Document talks about people who marry and have children and live in camps according to the order of the land and contribute two days salary per month. But then you have what we call the community rule, which doesn't mention women or children at all and demands that you hand over everything. Now, many people have thought that that was the rule for Qumran. I think it's clear that it wasn't just the rule for Qumran. It was that, but it was, you know, a, a higher grade in the movement. Huh. And I think also in the community rule that they talk at one point about people going out into the wilderness. And I think that was, if you like, a third grade. Like super oh, ascetic, super ascetic practices. Exactly. Super huh. ascetic and super holy, as yeah. they would have thought. Now, Catherine was mentioning reasons why. Uh, say a Christian church might not want to just take over the Dead Sea Scrolls no. or scripture. Well, what, one of their, their key documents that describes, you know, where they disagree with other people. Yeah. And my favorite example is the purity of liquid streams. Okay. If you have two cups and one of them is dirty and you pour water into the dirty cup, does the impurity travel upstream to the first cup? Now, apparently from this, the Pharisees thought it didn't. And the Essenes thought, well, you can't live with people who think, think the first cup remains pure. <laughs> wow. Now, you know, I have gone through life quite happily without worrying about that. <laughs> uh, one of my sons is a scientist and he heard me give this lecture one time. And he said, you know, I worry about that every day in the lab. <laughs> So we would we would we would not want to uh, um, idealize the Qumran community, uh, the Essenes or whoever they are. No. Uh, but their gift to us, uh, two thousand years later, uh, is even if it's an unintended gift, is these scrolls that witness to the process of the the formation of scripture. Is that they and, and they also uh, witness to a lot of what was going on in Judaism around the time of Christ. Oh, and yeah. I mean, that's of great interest for Christians. Mm -hmm. uh, I think maybe of more interest for Jews is that they show you how much of what later became rabbinic law was already in practice. Mm. And a certain amount of it was.
But there are a few very interesting texts, uh, I mean, of great interest for, for Christianity in particular. Mm -hmm. One of them, for example, is an Aramaic text that talks about a figure who is to come, son of God, he will be called, and son of the Most High, they will name him. Hmm. No, it's almost, you know, it corresponds in Aramaic almost exactly to the Greek of the Gospel of Luke. Huh. If this happened to be a biblical text, everyone would assume that Luke was quoting it. Hmm. Nobody wants to say that since, you know, we don't know where this came out of. <laughs> <laughs> but you have a couple of texts like that, you know, that tell you some things. Obviously, this was not a prophecy of Christ, <laughs> but it was probably a prophecy of a Messiah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, there is another text that's very much like a passage at the beginning of Matthew 11 uh, that talks about the works of the Messiah, you know, heal the sick, uh, pre preach good news to the poor, heal the sick and raise the dead. And, so it shows that uh, there was this sort that 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 some of what you know what 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 the gospels tell us Jesus did that those were part of the expectations around the time in this period that what the what the messiah would do that's right uh, yeah that's right that's cool. I, it it's probably important to note and i know i think we've assumed that people know this but just to make it clear there are no new testament texts among the dead sea right. scrolls Right. That's right. Although, though, at one point, there was a Spanish Jesuit who claimed to find a, war, a, a bit of the Gospel of Mark hmm. in Greek. Problem was, there was only one complete word in the fragment, and that was the Greek word kai, which means and. And. <laughs> Well, you can't so prove that, it wasn't. That, that didn't quite cut it, you know. <laughs> oh, wow. This is amazing. I'm sure we could like spend forever on it. Um, but a cup just to, to sort of sum up anything in particular you want to drive home for our, our, our listeners. And then also, let's say someone, you know, is listening to this podcast and they're like, dang, this is so interesting. And I would love to learn more about it. Like, do you have like a you know, sort of like a layperson's guide, where should they go first? Well, you know, I, I have what I think is a nice little book called The Dead Sea Scrolls, a biography. Oh, cool. Published by Princeton about, I think it was 2012. And it's really more the story of the discovery and the reception. Uh-huh. You know, I'm not going through to describe the community. I have another book that does that. But this is the more readable one. And there are, I think, some pretty good anecdotes in it too, which if we wanted to take more time, I could entertain you with, but. <laughs> yeah, the, the story of the discovery, the discovery and the reception, it, it reads like, it's kind of an Indiana Jones type. I mean, there's, there's elements, amazing. not, not yeah. Nazis or anything, but, uh, but it's fascinating. It's, Did it's you sell really the rights to Hollywood? John? <laughs> well, <laughs> you know that there is a, a professor recently retired from Princeton Seminary named mm -hmm. James Charlesworth. Oh, yeah. Who actually got himself filmed at one time as in kind of Indiana Jones, you know, oh, going yeah. around interviewing people who were thought to know something about more scrolls. I don't think it ever came to anything in the end, but, <laughs> uh, but it's tempting. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it shows just 
you know, the, 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 the depth and breadth of the biblical tradition as well, and sort of understand the kind of complexity of how the text came together. Um, you know, I think we talked about this in one of our first episodes, but the Bible didn't just plop out of the sky, fully yes. formed. <laughs> and, and, you know, yeah. it, it, one thing that it cures you of is literal inspiration. Mm. Because you can't really have literal inspiration if you're not sure what the letters are. Yeah. Yeah. What the words are. Yeah. So it's a it's a it's a human endeavor, but uh, believers, uh, those who believe the Bible is scripture, which includes us, uh, believe that somehow in the midst of it, the Holy Spirit was at work in this yeah. messy situation, yeah. forming a scripture that is edifying for generations of believers. But, but you can't pin the spirit down to exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yes, right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the Enter the Bible podcast. And you can get high quality courses, commentaries, resources, videos, reflections, and much more at the newly relaunched Enter the Bible website at enterthebible.org. Thanks for joining us.